0: everyone. I'm Lance. I'm Grace. <laughs> we are Ex-Mormons Redeemed and we, uh, well, we haven't been, we haven't been around for a while. We had the holidays and, oh, we had a great Christmas. We had, uh, oh my, well, Christmas Eve we hung up 23 stockings. That's how full our house was. It was,
1: it was amazing. Chaos. Chaos, but amazing.
0: Chaos, chaos. Written and Grace is our story. It is the story of rescue from Mormon chains and redemption in Christ Jesus. Check the link in the show notes below. Today we wanted to talk with you about a really interesting magazine article. It's actually a little bit old. It was written in June of 2014 in the Atlantic Magazine, but it's relevant still today. And it is entitled, The Seven Signs That You're in a Cult. And as we read through them...
1: I could see each and every one of them happening to us now or then.
0: And you know, the funny thing is, one of the times when being in a cult becomes most obvious is when you try to leave that cult. When you think you have the right to decide for yourself what you're going to do and the direction you're going to take with your life. There are those that would say... uh, no.
1: Yeah, more ways than one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> anyway, let's, uh, let's get going. I'm just going to run through the seven signs first, and then we'll come back and we'll take a look at each one and discuss it individually. The first one is opposing critical thinking. Number two, isolating members and penalizing them for leaving. Whew, that's a big one. Number three, emphasizing special doctrines outside of Scripture. Number four, seeking inappropriate loyalty to leaders. Number five, dishonoring the family unit. Number six, crossing biblical boundaries of behavior versus sexual purity and personal ownership. And finally, number seven, separation from the church. So let's jump into these.
1: Yeah, opposing critical thinking. Wow. I can remember so many times... We're we're told, yeah, go out and, and study these things out, pray about them, but then they'd turn around and say, when the prophet or some the leadership has spoken,
0: the thinking has been done.
1: Exactly, it's crazy. It's like yeah. whoa, contradiction. Yeah.
0: yeah, go go think about it. Go pray about it. Go get your own confirmation. But rest assured, the thinking has been done, and it's already been settled. So it really wasn't so much about us going out and critically examining new pieces of doctrine or or new ideas. It was simply us going out and bending and twisting our minds until we finally could come to agree with the prophets because they had already done the thinking.
1: That's right.
0: And it was crazy. It was insane that we did that. I have a couple quotes that I'd like to just share with you. The first one, it was from the Mormon newsroom. It's, called, it's in an article called Approaching Mormon Doctrine. So this has to do with the Mormon's proper response when the church comes up with strange and wild new doctrines, which they do. It says individual members are encouraged to independently strive to receive their own spiritual confirmation of the truthfulness of church doctrine. Moreover, the church exhorts all people to approach the gospel not only intellectually but with the intellect
1: With the intellect and the spirit.
0: Ah, but with the intellect and the spirit, uh, a process in which reason and faith work together. This is actually very interesting. We are told to to go out and get our own answer, get our own confirmation. I love Acts 17.11. While Gracie's looking that one up, I'll just kind of give you a... An, an an interesting story about Act seventeen eleven. See, Act seventeen eleven is about the Brians, who were called the more noble of all the Jewish followers of Christ, and 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 uh, well, more correctly, more noble than those who are followers of Christ in Thessalonica. And it's interesting to me that in five years of being a Christian, I have asked—I I can't even begin to count the number of Mormons who have told me, "Oh, I love the Bible," and so I would say, "What do you think?" of the Bereans, and they look at me and go, the who? So what does it say, Grace?
1: Okay, starting with verse 10, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogues of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so.
0: Okay, you're reading from the uh, the New King James, yes. but it's interesting the, that other translations actually translate it to be more noble instead of fair-minded. The question would be, if there's a people that are indeed more noble, why Why would anyone who claims to follow Christ not want to know who they are, or what made them noble, so that they too? Can, be noble,
1: right? My footnote does say noble. <laughs> uh, does it?
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, you know the 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 little bit uh between these translations sometimes is interesting, but one of the things that I I really love about this is that they were considered noble because they questioned what Paul said. This is Paul the apostle. This is the amazing Paul, and yet they questioned what he said, they, they proved every word he said by the scriptures and that made him noble. What do the Mormon leaders say about considering the possibility that they are wrong? This is an interesting quote from the teachings of Harold B. Lee. Now, Harold B. Lee was a Mormon prophet. He said, keep your eye on him whom the Lord called. And I say to you now, knowing that I stand in this position, you don't need to worry about the president of the church ever leading the people astray because the Lord would remove him out of his place before he would ever allow that to happen. Now, can you think of any situations where one prophet has taught one thing and another has taught something else? The law of non-contradiction says if they have opposite teachings, one has to be wrong. They cannot both be right.
1: Right, but we see that all through the history of the church.
0: Yeah. And, and in fact, one of the most interesting examples is Joseph Smith himself. The title page of the Book of Mormon says that Jesus is the eternal God. Inside the Book of Mormon, it refers to him as the eternal God again and again and again. And yet, just a few weeks before Joseph was killed, he gave a sermon where he said, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I re- I rebuke, no.
1: Refute.
0: I refute. (laughs) Lost the word. I refute that and take away the veil so that you may see. And then he went on to teach that God was not God from all eternity, but that he actually began as a mortal man just like you and I. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul would say, hey, don't automatically believe me. Test, test, test. And yet the Mormons say, there's no way we can even lead you astray. So just believe Right. Believe, Believe. The other thing that's interesting to me, I've got one more quote. This is Joseph Fielding Smith. He also was a prophet of the church. and he sa- And he was talking about sustaining the leaders. And every member of the church is required to raise their right hand and swear that they will sustain their Mormon leaders several times a year at every ward, stake, and general conference. And so he said, You will abide the pledge you have given to the Lord, and to one another by the uplifted hand that you all mean to uphold and sustain those officers in all these various organizations. The problem is, the first quote I read you said that they are to get their own independent spiritual confirmation. But if the prophet can never lead you astray, as we've already established as their teaching, and if they are required to sustain and support the prophet or the other church leader, then any time they would look at a new teaching or a new doctrine and go, that's not right, it automatically pits them against the prophet. It means that they're violating their oath to sustain the prophet. And so really what they're saying, I believe, is that you have to wrestle with the obvious problems in your mind until you can somehow figure out a way to make what you have heard and know to be wrong right. Right?
1: It's human nature not to want to be wrong. And if you do disagree, you also don't want to be the one to show. See, he's talking about raising your right hand to sustain these people, these leaders. But if you don't, you're also expected to raise your hand. And if you're the one, only one... Raising your hand in opposition, what does that tell everybody in the congregation? A
0: non-believer, a heretic, That's right,
1: and people don't want that, so they don't say anything at all.
0: Right, right, right. And it's interesting, again, one more time we have this, this reason to believe that we are to test. Paul wrote to the church there in Galatia, he said, Even if we or an angel from heaven should come and bring a gospel other than the one you have received... They must be accursed. Paul is saying, test us and accurse us if we come to you and lie. And and the fact is, back in those days, that would have been tantamount to blasphemy. And so the cursing would be probably a stoning.
1: Most likely. Yes,
0: most likely. Item number two, isolating members and penalizing them for leaving.
1: Oh, that never happens. <laughs> Sorry, sarcasm.
0: It's it's a crazy thing. The, ch- the church has issued a letter that says that I represent, that I am a danger to church leadership, and I cause Mormon members to fear, and therefore I'm not allowed to come on church properties to attend church meetings. You know, that's probably okay. I, I don't care, but it's interesting to me a couple of things. One... If you look to the Bible, you will see that there are many occasions where people are cast out of the synagogues. You will also see that in every occasion, it is those people who hate Jesus, casting those people who love Jesus out of the synagogues. I believe it is to divide people. I believe it is to build walls between those people that that love Christ and would openly rebel against the blasphemies of false religion and build a wall between them and those people who are still being controlled. One of the interesting things about being cast out of the Mormon church is that, uh, well, there were some unforeseen complications. When I attend the funeral or wedding or any celebration of my Mormon friends and family, I have to go and literally attend the funeral by standing on the curb and praying for those people, or standing on the curb with a wedding gift in my hand, waiting for someone to tell the bride and groom, hey, Lance and Grace, they're out there. So they come out, we give them their gift, give them a hug, and go home. And so it has been very much a dividing wall between us and the people we love. But here we go Doctrine and Covenants. This is canonized Mormon scripture. Doctrine and Covenants, section 47, verses 3 and 5. Nevertheless, ye are commanded never to cast anyone out of your public meetings, which are held before the world. And verse 5: And again I say unto you, you shall not cast any out of your sacrament meetings who are earnestly seeking the kingdom. I speak this concerning those who are not of the church. So it's interesting. I am not to be cast out if I am truly seeking God.
1: As I was listening to you read that, whose kingdom are we talking about? <laughs> God's kingdom or their definition of God's kingdom? That's
0: right. Yeah, I guess they could could make an exemption because I am seeking God and I'm not seeking the God of Joseph Smith or however you would interpret right. that. Right. <laughs> okay. Uh, did you have anything on isolating members?
1: Um. I just had one scripture from the Bible. I'm sure there's many, many out there, but this is one I came up with. Uh, This is in John 16, verse 1 and 2. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. (laughs) And that sounded pretty familiar to me also.
0: It's interesting that, that they, have, they have commandments in their scriptures not to cast anyone out. And then the Bible tells them, hey, if you're casting people out, you're on the wrong side of God, for certain and for sure. Okay, item number three, emphasizing special doctrines outside of scripture. There's uh, a number of interesting doctrines that the church has adopted. One is universal salvation. Yet They say... Uh, in Doctrine and Covenants, it strictly says that those people who truly live the gospel according to Mormonism, they will go to the upper floor, the celestial kingdom in heaven. And those who are good people but don't really care to be Mormon, they go to the central level, the main floor of heaven. And finally, those people who are evil, thieves, liars, adulterers, they still go to heaven, they just have to live in the basement in the celestial world. That completely goes against Matthew seven that says, broad is the way and white is the gate that leads to destruction and many there are that find it and narrow is the way. Or, well, actually what, straight is the way and narrow is the gate, I guess it says, that leads to life and few there are that find it. God's own word says, hey, this is the way and most people will reject it and yet the Mormons say, everybody, Everybody gets heaven. And I think it makes for a lazy Mormon. They may not have the penthouse, but they're still in heaven, and they call that good enough, I suppose. There's another one that is interesting. Jesus died for the sins of the world. Well, according to Joseph Smith and the first half of the Mormon prophets, Jesus died for some of the sins of the world. But those sins that are more serious His blood was too thin, too watered down, too anemic to cover. And one of those sins, in our case, is leaving the Mormon church and abandoning our temple covenants. And the early prophets, especially Brigham Young, taught that the only way we can be forgiven of those sins is if we pay for them with our own blood, which means one of our Mormon friends and neighbors need to come to us knife in hand, cut our throats, and our blood will be shed, fall to the ground, and then rise up uh, as their own teachings say, as an incense to the Lord, that we might be forgiven. And that is a crazy teaching because it teaches that your blood and mine is more powerful, has more power to save than the blood of
1: Christ. Well, that just goes along with the scripture I just wrote. Read. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: She's got mic fright. Yes. (laughs)
1: In John, John 6, what was it, John 16, one and 2. Because 2 says that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. Yeah, wow, wow.
0: And one last example is just what they do in the temple, the endowments, the ceilings, the baptisms for the dead, that sort of stuff. It can't be found in the Bible. It's not there. But I think most, most condemning of all was actually the changes Joseph Smith made to the Bible. In John 1.1, we know it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, Joseph Smith changed that to read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was the gospel. He has actually taken Jesus right out of that picture. And then there's another one, Romans 4.5, which is such an encouraging verse to us. It says that God will justify the ungodly. And there's a lot of scriptural evidence for this. But God will justify the ungodly. Well, Joseph Smith changed that by inserting one word, not. God justifies not the ungodly. Well, if you're ungodly and I'm ungodly and we're ungodly and the Bible says that no one seeks God, Romans 1, then none can be saved.
1: That's right. Thank you, Jesus. Revelation twenty two eighteen and 19 states that For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And I thought it was kind of interesting because clear back in Proverbs. Get over there. Proverbs 30. Verse 5 and 6, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. There are so many changes that the Mormon people have made, well, Joseph Smith specifically, to, to Scripture, and we're not to do that. And a lot of people say, yeah, but Revelation, they're talking just Revelation. No, this is clear back of Proverbs, people.
0: The Word of God.
1: The Word of God.
0: The Word of God is, is inspired. It's God-breathed according to the Scriptures, and no man has a right to change it. That's and right. yet one man thought he could.
1: That's right. right. Okay,
0: moving on. Item four, seeking inappropriate loyalty to leaders. Wow, this one was... Is crazy to me have you heard of the testimony glove it's uh, uh, something that the church came up with and and really pushed a few years ago and it's still out there and being taught basically what uh, the way they teach children to bear their testimony is this they put on a glove and attached to the glove are on the tip of each finger are five pictures on the thumb we have the picture of Heavenly Father. And I don't know how you can have a picture of Heavenly Father since no one has seen Heavenly Father. On the index finger, you have a picture of Jesus. On the middle finger, you have a picture of the Salt Lake Temple. On the ring finger, you have a picture of Joseph Smith. And finally, on the little finger, you have a picture of the living prophet, whoever the Mormon prophet is at that time. And when they teach the children to bear testimony, they say, it's important that you say, I know and so the the kids don't really have a biblical understanding of why they know what they think they know they just have this picture in their head and so they go through the they go through the glove one finger at a time starting with the thumb I know that I have a Heavenly Father who loves me and I love him and I will follow him whatever they want to say about Heavenly Father number two is Jesus I know that he paid for all my sins in the Garden of Gethsemane. The middle finger, don't hold that one up by itself, (laughs) has a picture of the temple and it says, I know that the church is true. The ring finger, Joseph Smith. I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. He was an instrument through which the gospel of Jesus Christ was restored. And finally, the little finger which shows the current prophet. As of this recording, it is Russell Nelson. I know that this church is led by a prophet of God, Russell Nelson. Uh, But but again, the problem is where is the biblical understanding? Where is the biblical support? Where is the knowledge that that the Bereans would have had by testing everything according to the word. Where is the knowledge that the Galatians would have when they said when they would do what Paul said and and test other gospels and other ideas and other teachings according to what the Bible has already said? It's not there. It's simply think of your hand, think of the pictures, regurgitate.
1: Yeah. Uh Luke sixteen 13 says no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon and that's what I feel that this is all about they are teaching not God but that other servant you can't serve both they say they believe in God but they don't they're not serving God Right.
0: They're they're like the people in Matthew 7 that said, Lord, didn't we in your name cast out demons and do all these mighty works? He says, I I don't know who you are. Go away. Because they never knew him. Right. I want to share a couple of quotes. One is uh, from Boyd K. Packer, who is now dead, but if he was still alive, he would be the next prophet of the Mormon church. And the other is by Dallin Oaks, who is still living. And if he outlives Russell Nelson he will be the next prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ, of Latter-day Saints. I wanna be careful and not say the Church of Jesus Christ because the Mormon Church is not the Church of Jesus Christ. Anyway, here's Boyd, Boyd, Boyd K. Packer. It is not unusual to have a missionary say, how can I bear testimony until I get one? How can I testify that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ and the gospel is true, if I do not have such a testimony? Would that not be dishonest? And that is such a great question because if you bear a testimony of something you do not know, is that not dishonest? I would say yes. But Boyd K. Packer continues, Oh, if I could teach you this one principle, a testimony is to be found in the bearing of it. In other words, bear a testimony of the things you don't know until you think you know. Dallin Oaks is next up. Another way to seek a testimony seems astonishing when compared with the methods of obtaining other knowledge. We gain or strengthen a testimony by bearing it. Someone even suggested that some testimonies are better gained on the feet bearing them than on the knees praying for them. Now, this is heresy in my opinion. It's more powerful to stand on your feet and listen to your own words than to get on your knees and listen to God. But more importantly, both of these men, apostles of Jesus Christ according to the Mormons, are saying, until you have a testimony, bear a testimony as if you had one. And, and we all know that the more times you tell a lie, the more that lie feels like the truth. That's just, that's just the way it works
1: well it also made me think that if you tell a child that he's dumb and stupid over and over and over what happens eventually he believes it so that is exactly the method that is being used here but if you tell a child how wonderful and loving they are over and over and over that's what they become
0: i think back to when we were members of the church how we would actually take our children or at least i guess i did you didn't i would i would take my very small children as soon as they could talk i would take them up on fast and testimony meeting to the podium and i would kneel down next to them they would stand there and and i would whisper in their ear i know the church is true and they would repeat and i know that joseph smith was a prophet and they would repeat my children had no such knowledge, and yet I was up there literally as their father compelling them to lie.
1: You were brainwashing them.
0: Oh, yeah. Some parents shouldn't be allowed to be parents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> apparently,
0: apparently I'm one. You know, in closing on this section, 1 John 5, 13. I love this passage. It's John as a, as a seasoned, aged, experienced Apostle and he says I write these things that you may know that if you have the son you have life and The beauty of this now is I have told in fact I've gone to so many members of the church and said I'll return to the church if you can do one thing for me I need a passage from Mormon scripture that is as good or better than first John five thirteen, it gives me those same type of assurances and that cannot be contradicted by other LDS doctrine. And if you can give me that, I'll return to the church and I'll be baptized. And to a man they can't. And the most interesting thing is I leveled that challenge before the local stake president and bishop two years ago. They asked for a week to prepare and come back and now it's two years. And they have not appeared at all. They do not have anything better. And so I, like John, can say, I know that I have eternal life. I know that if (gasps) it's my last breath, my next breath will be with God. I know it, and I know that I know it, and it's based on God's Word. It's based on a study of God's Word. It's based on putting those pieces together from the Old and the New Testament and seeing this beautiful picture emerge of which I can have complete confidence. I like that. All right, let's jump to item five, dishonoring the family unit. And it's really interesting, we left the church five years ago and one of the questions to get your temple recommend said this, do you support, affiliate with or agree with any group or individual whose teachings or practices are contrary to or oppose those accepted by the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints? Now, think about that. In order to get their temple recommend, they have to say, no, I do not affiliate with these kind of people. But at the same time, I am that kind of person. My family had to go in and say, I don't affiliate with people like that because I clearly disagreed with the practices and and I was contrary to those that are accepted by the church. And so as a matter of course, when people would go in and get their temple recommend, it used to be annually, I believe it's now semi-annually.
1: Twice, once every two years. Ah,
0: yes, once every two years, sorry. They had to say, no, I don't affiliate with him. You see, they build shunning right in to the covenants and the promises that the people make.
1: Oh yeah, but family is supposed to be the core of the Mormon church
0: and they've changed that question now and they've taken that part out because i think people were screaming and yelling and bucking and pitching because they still love their apostate family members their children and their parents and and they've changed it some but then that brings us to your favorite passage
1: Hebrews 13:8
0: Hebrews 13:8
1: God's the same yesterday yesterday today. today and forever
0: and if that was the right question to qualify people to enter the temple of god five years ago. It has to be the right question today because God is the same.
1: Yesterday, today, and forever.
0: Or at least he ought to be and will be in his true church. Speaking of dishonoring the family unit, one of the things that I have looked back on and thought was so horrible is at my own wedding and at at other weddings and such in the Mormon temple. There's always been a part of the family that has to sit outside and wait. They are second class citizens, not welcome in the temple. I listened to a woman doing a YouTube video a few years ago and it just broke my heart. She spoke of her father. She said he was a good father, a loving father. He cared for them and, and encouraged them and cared for their needs and I oh, just a great guy and yet, on the day she was married, she went in for her endowments and then her sealing. And probably I would assume her washing and anointings, it was all done on the same day. Well, that's a several-hour several process. And so this man was forced to sit outside. He sat outside the, the temple and cried. Because he couldn't be, after all he had done for his daughter, he couldn't be at her wedding. But even to make things worse, just to show that these people are considered to be so much less, so dishonorable. After waiting for probably several hours, he, he needed to use the restroom. He desperately needed to use the restroom. And if he's an old guy like me, uh, sometimes that gets urgent. And he needed to use the restroom and he went to the front door of the temple and said, oh please, I'm waiting for my daughter, she's inside being married, can I use the restroom? No was the answer. That dishonors family. Not only is he not worthy to see his daughter married, he is not worthy to sit on their toilet. That makes me crazy. <laughs> uh, item six, crossing biblical boundaries of behavior versus sexual purity and personal ownership. This one's crazy. Have you got anything on this one, Gracie?
1: Well, I had several down, but I think the most obvious one is going to be found in Genesis 2.24.
0: Ah, it's the one I wrote down too. Yeah. Yeah, great minds, right? Of course. (laughs) Genesis 2.22. It's simple. We'll paraphrase it. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, and he turns to his wife, and he clings to her, and the two become one flesh. That is... God's pattern for marriage. Now, not only did Moses write it down when he wrote Genesis, but Matthew wrote it down when the people asked Jesus some questions. And he said, have you not read? For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother. And then in Ephesians 5.31, for this reason, a father, the God's pattern for marriage was set in stone from the beginning, and it has not changed until this very hour.
1: And I found one in Titus 2:11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It talks all through the Bible, talking about how lust and these worldly lusts are an evil thing.
0: But, but in the Bible, it also talks about people who call good evil and evil good. And so pretty soon we're doing evil things, and we're calling them good and worthy and righteous. And I have some examples that just truly bother me. The law under Moses. Now, it's, it's important to realize that God never endorsed, nor did he command polygamy. But he made some rules, if, and, and God does this sometimes. He lets people choose, and if they choose evil, then he steps in, and these rules actually became almost more like laws of the land because the whole pattern was in opposition to God. But, but one of the laws said that you may not marry sister pairs. Well, Emily, Emily and Eliza Partridge were two young girls Who Joseph Smith married Sarah and Maria Lawrence also were sisters both were the wives of Joseph Smith the penalty for for doing this was death and then there was a prohibition against marrying a mother and her daughter Sylvia and Patty sessions were mother and daughter and Joseph Smith married them both and then throughout the Bible we see a prohibition on adultery We have absolutely confirmed that Joseph Smith had 33 wives. The church says he may have had as many as 40 on their official website. But here's the thing of the 33 we know, 11, that's one third of these women, were married to other women. Excuse me, were married. We weren't quite that liberal back then. (laughs) They were married to other men when Joseph Smith married them. And, and many of these, these other husbands were friends of Joseph Smith. Some were even serving missions. Joseph would send them off on a mission. And while they were gone, while he had them separated, then he would marry their wives. He would pursue and marry married women. This is a perversion of everything we know to be right and true and good. And again, the pattern of marriage is given us in Genesis, Matthew, Ephesians, perhaps even more places, I don't know. Yeah. It it does also say in the in the Old Testament that you must not accumulate many wives or horses.
1: That's right.
0: And I think that there's two interesting truths there. First of all, you shouldn't have many wives, but why would God include horses with women? Because I think when you start accumulating wives, they become property, no more valuable to you than a horse. And it just becomes part of your herd, part of your harem, part of Yourself self-aggrandizement
1: right well and in Proverbs Proverbs 632 it says whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding and he's not saying a man with a woman it could be maybe a woman with a woman he, he's just saying <laughs> adultery with a woman lacks understanding he who does so destroys his own soul
0: his own soul okay wow
1: that's scary.
0: It, it is. Uh, last one, separation from the church. Just, I just have two quick quotes here and then we can can talk a little bit about that. This first one says, this was Joseph Smith sharing the story of his first vision. He says, I was answered. Now, Now, let me back up a little bit for those of you that aren't aware. Joseph Smith says that he was visited by God the Father and with Jesus Christ. And he asked them, which of all the churches are true and which one should I join? So here's the quote. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that these professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And then if we turn to the Book of Mormon, in the Book of First Nephi, we read this. This is in... Uh, chapter 14 verse 10 and it says then this is uh, Mormon prophet Nephi having a vision and the angel says to him and he said unto me behold there are saved two churches only the one is the church of the Lamb of God and the other is the church of the devil wherefore whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God now that's the Mormons whoever belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongs to that great church which is the mother of abominations, and she is the whore of all the earth. So what is the church? I mean, Joseph Smith obviously is teaching stay away from the churches that existed, the Christian churches. So in, in closing, I would like to share one passage, which I believe tells us what God's church really is. It's in John chapter 1, verse 12. And he says, But to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of God now let's just be very very clear about this none are the children of God until they believe until they receive they receive the right to become the children of God and as children of God we become children of the Most High God we become the family of God we become united with God as a family is united this is the church if you believe in God, if you have that assurance we spoke of earlier in 1 John 5, 13, that you have eternal life, you are in the church. But that church is not made up of a specific denomination. Certainly that church is not limited to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The church is made up of those believers who have earned the right to be children of God.
1: To become the bride of Christ.
0: The bride of Christ.
1: That's what excites me. (laughs)
0: me too well that uh that takes us through the seven sure signs that you're in a cult and as we went through them not only did we see application with the mormon church but in our lives having been lds for so long together we walked 40 years
1: 40 years in
0: the wilderness we walked 40 years as husband and wife in that wilderness and now having been redeemed five We have lived through many of these occultic practices, both as members of the church and otherwise. And I guess I would just want to close by saying we are so, 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 so.
1: Thankful to God that he has opened our eyes and the scales have fallen.
0: (laughs) Ah, we'll close it there. We'll see you next time.
1: Bye.